Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs. The Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Welcome back to the Plenteous Redemption podcast. Thank you again for tuning in and listening to these broadcasts. I pray they are a help and a blessing to you. Some of you have noticed that there are lots of transitions going on with the podcast. And uh, some of you also may note that this is about the <laughs> fifth or sixth time we've made transitions to the podcast, but all of which have, have served to be a benefit and a help. This particular instance, I am shifting everything from Podbean, which was my platform that I used as my foundation. That's, that's where I was broadcasting everything from. And through the RSS feed from Podbean, it was being sent out to the numerous other podcasting platforms. Currently, everything has been moved over to Sermon Audio. And uh, I did that for a couple of reasons. With Podbean, things were fine. It wasn't, there wasn't any particular problem or anything that, that was problematic. The idea is to move the audio over to, to Sermon Audio, where there is more of an interest in the things that I am working on. The crowd there, the people there who, who use Sermon Audio would have more of an interest in the things that I am putting out. Now, the podcast uh, still has an RSS feed that goes out to Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, Pocket Cast, you know, the list can go on and on. I, there's a, there are an endless number of, <laughs> seemingly an endless number of platforms that these could be hosted on. Um, and so what I've done is moved it over to Sermon Audio. Sermon Audio gives you the option to deliver these as a podcast as well as uh, just through the normal audio process and or video process that Sermon Audio uh, puts out. So what has happened is everything's moved over there. Each segment of my podcast, uh, there are lots of things I dabble with and look into and read and study, and, and, uh, and, and they often get turned into a podcast based on, on some things that I've learned or some ideas that I have. And uh, so what you have in the mainstream of the podcast is an admixture of everything that I have my hands in, uh, from Bible teaching to ministry updates to missiological exploration to the cross and the culture, all, all these things. And, and some people only want to hear one segment or another. They, they're not interested in the 
collective of all the information, and then others want to hear all of it. And so uh, in, in moving it to sermon audio, it allows me to sort of make provision for both, if that makes sense. And uh, not only so, it it is directed more to an audience that is interested through sermon audio, and it also still gets delivered to the other platforms uh, so that lost people or you know conservatives um, might discover the information and gain some benefit from it. Some of the topics can appear political. They're not political. Politics is the place where biblical morality or the lack of biblical morality has its practical application. And so political issues, they are spiritual issues. And uh, that's not to say we should get involved in politics. We should remain involved in spiritual issues. And if we were to help our society or country or, or however you want to, whatever dynamic you're targeting, if you were to help them with their spiritual problems, it would most certainly help their political problems. So that's just a quick update uh, of what's going on with the podcast. Uh, some of you have asked, some of you are wondering what's going on, not only with the transition, but but I have um, overhauled the way in which I take my notes and, and, uh, and put the podcast together and uh, at least the information or the, or the my personal writings that I use as an outline or sometimes a script for the podcast, depending on, on what we're talking about. I, I want to do less of a scripted type podcast uh, that you might have heard with things like the, the, the Cross and the Culture and do more of a just a conversational lecture type uh, podcast. So things will be moving in that direction. And as my notes are more become more organized, I'm beginning to record again. You know, I, I talked to you in a previous broadcast uh, in, in one of our ministry updates about, you know, changing out our computers, changing everything over to, to a system that, that is dependable and helpful. And uh, so as, as we've gone through all these transitions, this has basically been going on since about November of, of last year of 2021. Uh, and it's taken up till now to get to a place where everything is organized, everything is functioning, everything is moving well. And so now we can pick up with recording and, and uh, putting out, Lord willing, some helpful and useful information that will, that will bless you and help you and build you up in the most holy faith. My goal is to help you learn the Word of God more perfectly, as I learn the Word of God more perfectly. I have men in my life who teach me and that I learn from, and then I, I want to gather what I have learned together and, and present it to you in what I believe is a helpful and meaningful way. So pray about those things as we get them in order. Now, today, today's broadcast is actually, it is a sermon that I preached recently here at Masaka Independent Baptist Church on, on an important topic, a very important idea. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to necessarily preach it to you now. I'm going to present it to you in more of a, a teaching lecture type format, and we'll kind of see how it goes as I, as I figure this out and try to, try to kind of create my own approach to these things. Um, but the topic, for some reason, is unbelievably contentious. Uh, I don't know why. I, I don't understand what the purpose is for the high level of contention it, it really, it's ridiculous. Uh, it's unnecessary, but, but it's there. And, and that topic is Old Testament salvation. There are groups who will fight you over Old Testament salvation. 
They will literally tear your church apart because of what you believe about Old Testament salvation. Now that, to me, in my estimation, that is absolutely ridiculous and should not exist. If you disagree with what I'm going to, what I, with what I present here, not with what I'm going to present, you should at least listen to the presentation, <laughs> then determine whether you agree or disagree. But if you disagree, uh, praise the Lord. If you have a better handle on this than I do, amen. No problem. I don't understand why this would become a, a point over which we should fight. We can have discussions about it. If you have some light that would help me, praise the Lord. I'm, I'm all for it. But I'm not going to argue with people over it. I'm not going to fight with people over it. Uh, in fact, I'm going to try and present this, though I tend to be very direct and and, and somewhat brash in, in the way I you know, present myself. It is not my intent to present this in a contentious way myself. In fact, I would like to present this honestly and clearly and straightforward and, and try not to present an attitude of contention as we go through it, because it's not worth fighting over. There, there, in no world should Christians be divided over things like Old Testament salvation. You know, I believe in what would be what would be called the gap. <laughs> okay, if you don't, and you can't fellowship with me because I believe that there, that something took place between Genesis one one and Genesis one two, that that is a demonstration of your immaturity, not mine. If, if you can't just say, okay, he believes that I disagree with him, but but he's a brother in Christ, so that's not worth fighting over. Now, if, if you were to come to me and say Jesus Christ was not virgin born. Um, he is not God. Uh, there are some other means of salvation, uh, you know, a, a New Testament salvation other than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we have a problem. That, that is a biblically prescribed problem that we have to deal with, and, and, and we, would ha- we would have to be contentious over. Old Testament salvation is not one of those things. And so I, I hope those of you listening, while you might feel strongly about it, that's okay. It should not be a, a point of division between you and other churches, especially other Bible-believing churches. And it's the Bible-believing world that cares about this, and it's the Bible-believing world that fights over this. It, it's a blessing that Bible believers care about the Word of God and, and are willing to, to stand on what they believe. It is not a blessing, nor is it biblical, for you to be so divisive that you can't fellowship with, with brothers in Christ over something like Old Testament salvation. It, that is ridiculous and should be repented of. If you, if you have a strong stance on this, praise the Lord, stand on it, teach it, be clear about it, but don't let it divide you from your brothers in Christ because, because you've made this something that it should not be. Now, with that said, how were people saved in the Old Testament? That is, that is often the question. And, and to be frank or to, or to, to kind of set the, the, the tone up front, it, that's an improper question. This idea of being saved, the idea, the, the general idea of salvation as taught and understood in the New Testament, it was not used in the same manner in the Old Testament. And so when you, when you ask a question like, how were people saved in the Old Testament? You, well, then you, from there, you have to explain what you mean. 
because it's not the, the idea of salvation, the, the emphasis of salvation that is applied in the New Testament was not applied in the Old Testament. Nearly every single mention of the term salvation in the Old Testament was a reference to physical life, not eternal life or spiritual life. It was almost always, you could almost say every mention of the term salvation is a reference to someone's physical life being saved. It's not the same idea. It can picture what happened in the New Testament. It can be a type of what happens in the New Testament, but, but it is not the same thing. In the New Testament, you can ask this question, how are people saved in the New Testament? Because that is a major focus of the New Testament. Salvation is, is a key aspect of the New Testament, but it, it directly relates to eternal life, sins being forgiven, the soul being saved, the new birth. These are New Testament ideas. At the onset, what's happening is that someone with a New Testament understanding is asking how, how in the Old Testament did they receive what we have in the New Testament? And, and, and so the, those are two different worlds. They exist independently of one another, though they depend heavily on each other. And, and so you, you, you've got to keep both those realities in mind when you consider, okay, this is what happened in the New Testament, but what did this look like in the Old Testament? And so the, the, the question, how were people saved in the Old Testament, is for the most part a, uh, an, an improper question. It's an improper way to phrase the question. Uh, you might ask, how did people have their sins forgiven? You might ask, how did they obtain eternal life? I, I think probably the best way to, to phrase it would be, how did they escape condemnation? In the New Testament, it's very clear. They escape condemnation through, through faith in, in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. But in the Old Testament, how did they escape condemnation? Because that, that condemnation is there. It's very real. It, it exists. How did they break free from that? That's the, the better way to approach the question. Now, it, in today's Baptist churches, and, and I, I limit this to Baptist churches because not because I'm a, a major Baptist cheerleader. I really am not. I, I think our churches have serious problems and should probably stop being so proud of themselves at this point. But the reason I say Baptist churches is the reality is that if you're going to hear any semblance of truth today from God's Word, it's going to be in a Baptist church. Now, there are a few uh, Bible churches out there, too, that I can think of off the top of my head are, is, is Grace Bible Church in, in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. You know, the, the name of the church doesn't have Baptists on it, but, but they exist in the independent Baptist world. You know, it's, it's a good church, Bible-believing church. Uh, the pastor is a good friend of mine. It, you know, so, so there, there might be some, some churches here and there that don't identify necessarily as, as Baptist churches where you might hear the truth. That church is one of them. There's one in Staten Island. Mike Veach is the pastor. I can't think of the name of the church off the top of my head for some reason. Uh, that is another Bible-believing church. Used to be a Baptist church. They, they removed the, the name Baptist uh, for, for good reasons. I mean, it, it, I, I am a Baptist. I'm an independent Baptist. If I start a church here in Uganda, my, my expectation is that they will take up that framework but I am not a Baptist cheerleader because the Baptist world and Baptist churches have some very serious problems that need to be dealt with. And so it's less important to brag about being a Baptist than it is to brag about belonging to Jesus Christ. That little side note, 
is, is the reason I mention this, because in the Baptist world, there are generally two major ways this is taught. That is Old Testament salvation or the idea of or, or possibility of Old Testament salvation. And uh, to state them simply, and, and it, it's important to state your doctrine as simply as you can, because if you, stay, if you oversimplify it, that's how it's going to be revealed to you that there may or may not be problems. You know, if someone so simply states your doctrine that it upsets you, <laughs> that means there's something wrong with your doctrine. Uh, you know, if it, if it seems contradictory, incoherent in its most simple form, then, then there's a problem there. And, and instead of getting mad, you should, you should re-examine it and, and, and look into it. So, so if we were to simply state these two popular views, number one is everyone before Calvary looked forward to the cross and everyone after Calvary looked back to the cross. And there are problems with this teaching, and, and we'll look at that. Of the two, this is the more plausible. And there is some evidence for this idea. In order to prove this, this particular doctrine to be incorrect, you, you actually have to study it out. And, and there, is a, there is a base level of truth. If I, were to, if I were to try and explain to you what the overall problem is with this viewpoint, it's that it's, it doesn't go far enough. It's, it's, kind, it's somewhat shallow in its teaching. And uh, many of our Baptist churches, that, that's the name of their game. They, they try and make things as simplistic and shallow as they possibly can. They don't dive deep into the scriptures. They try to turn everything into easy-to-remember catchphrases. And, and it, it, there might be some grounds for that when you're dealing with you know, six-year-olds. But when you're dealing with grown adults, you've got you to feed them some meat, and, and no doubt, somewhere in the, in the midst of that congregation is a, is a, is a newborn babe in Christ who, who needs some, some milk to, to live on. But the problem is that it seems that our churches are stuck, our teaching in many of our churches, that it, it's all stuck at the milk stage and nobody, gets, nobody goes on to meat, or very few go on to get to the, to, to the meat of the spiritual life. And so this is an example of that. It, it's, it's somewhat shallow. It's, it's not, and again, I'm not trying to be insulting. You'll see what I mean as we go through this. If you'll, if you'll hear me out and, and I'll demonstrate to you where, where I believe the breakdown is in this teaching. And there is a point at which it breaks down. Now you have to go pretty far to get there. So there is some validity to this, to this idea, but it, it, it's, it's to some extent intellectually dishonest. And so, so we need to examine that and see why. Now the second idea or viewpoint is in the Old Testament, men were saved by keeping the law. This is the one that people want to fight over. And I have no idea why. There are large segments of the Old Testament that deal with people who never had the law. <laughs> they, had no, they did not have the law from God to keep. How could it be possible that those people were saved, if you will, by keeping the law that, that didn't exist or wasn't given to them? The Lord sent Jonah to Nineveh to preach the Gentiles and told them if they didn't repent in 40 days, God was going to destroy that place. And they repented, but never started keeping the law. You know, it just, it, you know, so, so they're, they're, the, the first idea has some plausibility. It has some support, but not enough. The second idea has no support whatsoever and has numerous, numerous problems. And, and falls apart nearly immediately, like in 
Genesis chapter 3. From Genesis, from Genesis all the way to Exodus 20, there is no law. You know, and then you have numerous groups throughout the Bible who, who never got the law, never, never kept the law, and yet they somehow were able to please God or, or have a relationship with God. This second teaching has the most problems, and this second teaching is the one that, that people are the most contentious over, and, and it's, it's unfortunate. I, the second teaching is the Bible could not be any more clear about. It is unbelievably clear that that idea cannot be true. Hopefully you'll see that with me as we go through this, but you know these things are not worth fighting over. So we'll, we'll examine the first statement, and then we'll look at the second one, or the first viewpoint, and then the second viewpoint. And, and view number one is that people before the cross looked forward to the cross, and people after the cross looked back to the cross, or, or before Calvary and after Calvary. It is, again, has some plausibility. It has a little bit of foundation. It goes pretty far, and then it, then it breaks down. In fact, in fact, you'll see as we get closer to the cross, this becomes even more untrue. Men that walked with the Lord Jesus Christ rebuke the Lord for telling them he's going to the cross, which means they were not looking forward to the cross. Now, you know, so, and, and, the, and the point is here, you have to be intellectually honest, you have to be clear, and, and the, the clarity is that people in the Old Testament, they did depend on the finished work of Jesus Christ in some way, but they didn't know that, and they didn't look forward to that. So, it, so it's intellectually dishonest to say that they were looking forward to the cross though it is truthful to say that they have some dependency on what happened at Calvary. So, so both are true at the same time. And if both, if both of those are true, then, then you cannot say the people before the cross were looking to Calvary or looking to the cross. They were not looking to the cross. They, they, again, they did depend on, on certain aspects of things that took place at the cross. It was important to them and to their salvation, but they were not looking forward to it. They wanted a kingdom. Their Messiah was going to establish a kingdom. Though they had, they had plenty of scripture that demonstrated to them that, that he was going to die. They just didn't understand that and overlooked that. And again, we're going to, we're going to look at that and it's going to all make sense. So, so let's dive into this and, and see if we can make sense of it together. And uh, Lord willing, see if I have any validity in, in making the statements that I've made so far. Now, the reason this is important, the, the reason it's important to, to go through this exercise and to examine Old Testament salvation, um, it's not so that you can win arguments and win fights. The reason this is important is that the mechanics of salvation, and, and by that I mean the way to escape eternal condemnation, it was established in the Old Testament and carried over into the New Testament. So, so this is very important. It, it's, again, it's not worth dividing over. It's not worth fighting over. But to some extent, the way that people escaped condemnation in the, in the Old Testament is also the way that people escaped condemnation in the New Testament. Now, there's a caveat to that that, that we need to examine, and we will. But just keep that in mind as we go through this. And I think it will make sense to you as we arrive at the end uh, in an hour or so. <laughs> so. 
So let's start by looking at Revelation 19, verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, one of the reasons this this idea that, that men in the Old Testament looked forward to the cross has some shallow level of validity is the fact that Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. And the law and the prophets were until John. So it is true, the prophets, they prophesied about Jesus Christ. Uh, all, all prophecy is centered around the word that was made flesh. And, and the word that was made flesh, that is Jesus Christ, he is the, the coming Messiah. And so many times these Old Testament prophets, they prophesied about the Messiah coming and, and the things that would happen to him. And then they put their pen down and scratched their head and said, Lord, what in the world did I just write? <laughs> what is this? And the Lord would not tell them. In fact, in some cases, he told them, it's not for you. It's not for you to know. It's not for you to understand. This was not meant for you. And because of that, they, they, their understanding was not opened. And so th this, this is going to be, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. This is a key factor in the breakdown of this doctrine. The Lord separates belief and understanding. They are not one and the same. Well, and, and, and understanding is not required in order to believe. Uh, we'll see that the Lord expects you to believe, though you may not understand. And there are plenty of things you believe about, about life in general and, and about the Bible, the Word of God, that you don't understand, but you believe it. Most people have no understanding whatsoever of electricity. They believe it. They use it. It doesn't stop them. You don't understand how your car works, especially a, a modern-day car. <laughs> you still use it. You have no doubt you're going to walk out there, put the key in the ignition, turn that ignition, it's going to start up, and you're going to drive away. And, and, and you're going to go 80 miles per hour down the road in, in, a, in a vessel you have no understanding of. <laughs> but then you have, so if you use it, put it in biblical terms. Tell me you understand the Trinity. You know, you have the one true and living God. There's one God, but he's made up of three persons. Well, which one of the three is God? All three. So you have three gods? No, you have one God, but you need all three to make the one God. Okay. <laughs> you, you explained to me how Christ died, was buried, and then rose from the dead. And during that time of his death, he's hanging out down in, in hell. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you tell me how all that works. So you, you don't understand it, but you believe it, or you should believe it. You should believe that Christ died for your sins. He was buried and rose again the third day. And you should believe the Trinity. There, there are many things in the Bible that took place. God spoke the world into existence. You tell me how that happened. All right, so you don't understand these things, but you believe them. And, and the Lord separates belief from understanding. And we'll see that very clearly in a moment. But in, in this instance, we're talking about the prophets writing about things they did not understand. And, and it's all about Jesus Christ. He's the center of all prophecy. He's the spirit of all prophecy. It, it all begins with him. 
Now, this confusion about what Jesus came to do, again, it only intensified as we get closer to the, to the cross. It didn't become more understandable. Uh, they became more vehement. They, they, they were more adamant. You're not going to Jerusalem. You're not going to die. Well, if they understood that the, the, if they had any understanding of the importance of that death, why would they be standing there telling him, no, you're not going, you can't go? You know, it's, it's, it's a silly idea and um, one that we should, we should reject, but again, not wholesale. There, there is an aspect to this doctrine that is true, that is correct. You know, if, if we, we could rightly divide our Bible under two major, major ideas. Now, we, we call this the, New Te- the Old Testament and the New Testament. And um, uh, we could also say the first coming of Christ at which he would die for the sins of the world. And then the second coming of Christ at which he will, he will reconcile all things and establish his reign forever. And the reason I, I say the reason this is important, because if we're going to talk about Old Testament salvation, we need to know when the Old Testament ends and when the New Testament begins. And if you don't fully grasp that, actually this, this idea that, that we're about to, to, to discuss, it, it's, it's going to greatly help some of you. As many people are very confused about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because there, there are things happening in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that, that don't seem to make any sense. And uh, there it makes sense. You just have to rightly divide it. You've got to put it all in its proper, its proper perspective. And, and we get the, the light we need to make sense of that in Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 17. And it says, But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, But by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. All right. So if if that were true, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, all right, so there, there's that, again, that validity pointing back to, to the idea, to the po- potential possibility that men before the cross looked forward to the cross. Well, they're not looking forward to the cross, but they will benefit from the death of Christ. All right, so so that that that's as far as it goes. They're not looking for it, but they will benefit from it. It would be improper, incorrect to say that they were looking forward to the cross, though you you could and should teach that they would benefit from the death of Jesus Christ. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must must also of necessity be the death of the testator, for a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. So here's what happens. Men, men are reading their Bible. They, they read Genesis all the way through to Malachi, and then they, they finish the book of Malachi, and they turn the page, and there's a title page that says New Testament. 
And so they, they think in their minds, as I turn this page, we are shifting away from the Old Testament, and we are now squarely in the New Testament. And that's not, that's not entirely true. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, initially, that is still Old Testament doctrine. Uh, in the opening pages of, of both Matthew and Mark, the Lord heals a leper and then tells that leper, I want you to go to the temple and show yourself in accord with the law of Moses. That's not New Testament doctrine. And, and so what you have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so, so what's happening uh, and, and what begins to happen side by side as you go through those books is that the Old Testament is passing away, for, for the law and the prophets were until John. John is the last prophet. And, and as, as, these, as this last prophet passes off the scene and the Lord is on the scene and he begins to preach side by side the kingdom of heaven as well as the kingdom of God. So you have the Old Testament being fulfilled and the New Testament emerging as you go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with the New Testament officially beginning with the death of the testator, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Now, you wouldn't separate the last few chapters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John from the first several chapters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and put a title page between them saying New Testament. <laughs> so the New Testament begins in those books. But as you're reading those books, you have to keep in mind when, when you're reading something and you're saying, this just doesn't seem to fit properly in the New Testament. Well, it may not be New Testament. It, it, they, the Lord may be dealing with an Old Testament issue in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and the New Testament doesn't begin until the death of Christ, which takes us then to the book of Acts, another transitionary period that takes us to the New Testament epistles, where we get grounded and rooted in New Testament doctrine. All right, so that's why all these ideas... You know, like uh, men who believe the church started with John the Baptist. <laughs> um, that's, that's a bit of a problem. There was no New Testament when John the Baptist was alive. And uh, John the Baptist had no understanding of the church. That is just total confusion. It makes no sense. It doesn't fit. And, and, it, and it can't be technically true, which means it cannot be doctrinally true. And so you should move on to something that is true and squared with Scripture. And, and so that's, that's important to do. So you, you see there in Hebrews 9 that the death of the Lord on the cross would not only cover the sins of the world at that time, but also, and, and in the future, but also looking back. And so those men are going to benefit from the death of Christ, but they had no understanding and did not believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You might ask, well, what did they believe? We'll get to that. We will get to that. Uh, just hang in there. Follow along. Let's read the Bible together. Try to understand this together and uh, see if it makes as much sense to you as it does to me. So with these ideas in mind, it's misleading to say they were looking forward to that, to that redemption. Because there's no indication whatsoever they were. But again, as we get closer to the cross, there's every indication they were not looking forward to it. So they were not looking forward to the cross, though they would benefit, again, for the hundredth time from what took place on the cross. And uh, they, they simply wanted Messiah to come and establish 
his reign on earth, and uh, th- th- there was no concern for the overwhelming value of the cross. They, they didn't consider that. They didn't think of that. That was not on their mind. Now look at 1 Peter 9, verse 12. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. So this passage is telling us that both the prophets and the angels desired to look into this. This just adds to the idea a prophet, uh, you know, records a future event about the death of the Messiah. And then, Lord, what in the world is this? What, what is this about? Who is this for? When's this going to happen? And the Lord gave them no answers. You know, they, they could see the idea. They knew something big was coming, but they, they just never quite gained the understanding needed to make sense of it all because it wasn't for them at that time. You know, it's for a future date. It's for something. This was something that was coming and something that needed to be recorded in the Word of God so that it could be fulfilled just as God said it would be, but it was not for the people who wrote it at that time. Could you imagine what some Jews would have done if they understood that Christ would save the Gentiles? <laughs> they might have burned that paper or erased it or <laughs> changed it. If they had any of Jonah in them, or those Jews, when the Lord's talking to that woman of Samaria, uh, no, sir, they wouldn't want anything to do with that. And, and so it, it, the Lord knew what he was doing. He, he wasn't hiding something from them in order to condemn them, but it needed to be revealed and understood in a certain way at a certain time. Uh, he didn't want to start a mutiny. <laughs> uh, and so, so here we see the prophets desired to look into it, but, but it wasn't for them to look into. Um, again, they would benefit from, from the Lord's death at Calvary, but they, they would not be given the privilege of understanding what that was all about, at least not at that time. Uh, look again at 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 15. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So here we, here we are again. Uh, you have Timothy, who, who had knowledge that was given to him from the Scriptures, that, that's the Old Testament writings, that were able to make him wise unto salvation. Now that's, that's important. The Old Testament, the, 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 the prophecies, the information in the Old Testament recorded about the death of the Messiah, it is able, it is able to make you wise unto salvation. But you need someone like, like Timothy had a pretty important figure in his life, the Apostle Paul. That's, that's very significant. 
very significant. How, how do you like that hy- hyperbole, <laughs> that double emphasis? Uh, because it because it's extremely important. There you go again. Um, the Apostle Paul, as we're going to see, w- w- he was one of the main figures used to to make this revelation clear and understandable. And so, while the information existed in the Old Testament and is able to make you wise unto salvation, it would not do so if you think of the Ethiopian eunuch. Understandest thou what thou readest? How can I? <laughs> How can I, lest some man should guide me? Right, so he's reading it, he can see it, but it's as enlightening as it as it is to him, it's also as confusing. It's it's not it, though it's filling his heart and mind with information that is able to make him wise unto salvation. He doesn't understand it until a man who does understand it from a New Testament perspective, filled with the Holy Spirit, sits down next to him and preaches from that same scripture, Jesus. It's very important. And so it's it's not enough to say they could have known, they should have known. They had the information, but it did not make them wise unto salvation until the light was given by the revelation of the mystery in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul and, and, and the others as well. Uh, it wasn't exclusive to the Apostle Paul. In fact, he makes that clear. And so Timothy can know. Timothy has the information. If, if he has Old Testament scriptures in his heart and mind, the knowledge is there, ready for him to hear what's next. And when the Apostle Paul came along and preached the gospel to him and, and revealed to him what those things meant, he became wise unto salvation and, and went on to be a preacher. And so uh, these things are important. Now, it's, it's important to ask, okay, if, if the prophets saw it, they wanted to look into it, um, the information is there. Hebrews says they, they, they would benefit from the death of the cross. Uh, Timothy, you, you, you've got this knowledge that is able to make you wise unto salvation. Okay, then why did they not understand? What was the problem? Let's look at Ephesians 3 and read verses 1 through 5. Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 5. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word. All right? Now, that's that's very important. Well, I, I highly believe we should rightly divide the word of truth. I think... The word dispensationalism is a bad term, though I, I believe it's the proper approach to the Bible. What, what, what is often called dispensationalism is, is the right way to approach the Bible in terms of rightly dividing. I believe rightly dividing is the better term. The word dispensation exists in the Bible and is used in, in a specific way. And, and so I, I think it causes confusion when we use dispensationalism to describe rightly dividing. We should use rightly dividing to describe dispensationalism and then use the word dispensation as it's used in the Bible. Anyways, that's that the reason I say all that is because this is used, the, the Lord is using this passage to mark a distinction. There, there is a dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to Paul and then given to us. Now, some of you are going to be nervous when you hear me say it's given to Paul and then given to us. 
This is not a Paul-only idea. It's a biblical idea. You know, there's no support to call yourself Paul-only in the Word of God. It's it's kind of a, it's it's another unnecessarily contentious idea that exists. Um, Paul said, I was given... I was given duty to make something clear. I was given this this job to reveal to you something that existed in the Old Testament, but men did not understand it. So let's let's continue. Uh, How that by revelation, he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand. Oh, that's significant. Because before that, you could read it, but you wouldn't understand. You, you, you did not gain understanding, all right? Now Paul is saying, whereby when you read, uh, you, may, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. All right, now it's, again, just a quick Paul-only note. Paul said, it was given to me, to me, from me to you. It was given to me to give to you. But he also says that the holy apostles and prophets, by the Spirit, did the same thing. All right. So you might say the church at Ephesus gained understanding of the revelation of the mystery through Paul, but Peter wrote to a whole different group of people, and James wrote to a different group of people, and uh, John wrote to different groups of people, and they all made known, according to this verse, they all revealed the revelation of the mystery, but we're, we're reading about it in detail. It just so happens, by, by the Lord's direction, uh, by the hand of the Apostle Paul, as he wrote it to the church at Ephesus. So this is not to say that only Paul got it, and it's not to say that, that, that only Gentiles can receive it from Paul. It just happens to be that the Lord used this letter to Ephesus to reveal this to us and make it clear to us. Because according to Paul, in this same letter, the apostles and prophets did the same thing. All right, so he says, in other ages, it was not made known unto the sons of men. The information was there. It was written down. They did not understand. It was not made clear to them. It was not revealed to them. There's a difference between having the information and then having that information revealed to you in a godly manner that that only the Spirit of God can do. Uh, The prophets pinned down the prophecy concerning these matters, but the Lord did not open their understanding. They wrote it, they read it, they taught it. They taught it in the temple and synagogues, but they had no clue what they were talking about. That's amazing to me. Uh, You you imagine Luke chapter 4. The Lord Jesus Christ walks in the synagogue reads from the prophet Isaiah, sits down. Everybody's just looking at him like, what in the world is... Something is happening here. What is happening? Everybody's just looking at the Lord. And he sits down, he says, this day is his prophecy fulfilled in your, in your ears. <laughs> he, he's revealing to them something they had no understanding of. They just thought they're showing up to the synagogue and, and listening to somebody read from Isaiah like they've always done. All of a sudden, it's somebody who reads it with authority, and, and they're amazed, and they're, they're fixated on him. What, what is this? And then he goes, and he sits down, and he says, it was just fulfilled. And instead of saying, praise the Lord, they, they 
shove him out of town and try to cast him off a cliff. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I would say those men were not looking forward to the cross. <laughs> I would say they were pretty upset that someone would suggest they are the fulfillment of, of prophecy. So, so we, we, you know, we've got to be honest about these things and, and look a little bit deeper. Look, the support for the potential for support, support for the idea is there, but it falls apart at the level of understanding. It also falls apart at a practical level in the fact that nobody, nobody was looking forward to the cross. And in fact, they were offended by any suggestion that their Messiah would go to the cross. They were upset about it, uh, which means they were not looking forward to it. They were not looking to it, looking forward to it. It, it, just, it just was not the case. And um, the Lord decides to use the Apostle Paul, along with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, to make clear the revelation of the mystery. Let's look at Luke 24, verses 25 to 31. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village, whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake. And gave to them, and their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. Here, here's where this separation from belief and understanding is made abundantly clear. All right? The Lord rebuked them for their unbelief. He rebuked them for being slow to believe, but then later had to open their eyes and reveal to them who he was. And then when he opens their eyes, he vanishes out of their sight. When they finally understand, okay, the pieces are coming together. This is the Lord. Moses and the prophets said this would happen to him. And then they, their eyes are opened. It's him. And then he's gone. All right, so, so, so we're, we're moving towards the direction of understanding at this point. But up to this point, the Lord is rebuking them for not believing you don't need to understand in order to believe. You should believe the word of God, though you may not understand it. Right? That, that's extremely, extremely important. You, you should not assume. This is, this is the problem, okay? And, and, and this is something, I, a concept that I think about from time to time and, and it and null over in my mind. It, it, it's, just, it's contrary to the way we do things. So this is what we do. We say, I don't understand that, so I'm not going to believe it. I'm going to wait. But you don't understand it. Why would you assume it, it is safe for you not to believe it because you don't understand it? Why don't you, when it pertains to God, why don't you believe it until you understand it? You don't understand it anyways. Why would it be safe to err on the side of unbelief regarding something you don't understand rather than erring on the side of belief regarding something you don't understand. It's not like, okay, now I understand it. Now that I understand it, I will, I will put my stamp of approval on what God said. That's not the way you do this. Believe God, trust God, let him help your understanding later. 
It's exactly what he did for these people here. Now, um, to kind of identify who we're talking about, the Lord appeared to be with two of the apostles, or at least two who were close to the apostles. In Luke 24, verses 9 through 10, and in Luke 24, 13, the Bible says two of them. And uh, verse 13 refers back to the group named in verses 9 and 10, which is referring to the, to the apostles. And what, what's interesting is that their eyes were opened, but their understanding, again, is not yet opened. And then in Luke, 20, in Luke 24, verses 6 through 8, let's, let's go there and read that real quick. I, I don't have my notes here, but I can turn there real fast. Luke 24, verses 6 through 8. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you. Now that, okay. It, now if you're going to teach, if you're going to say they were looking forward to the cross, here we are after the cross. And someone is reminding them of something the Lord told them before he died. And let's see how they handle it. He is not there, but he but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Yeah, he did say that. <laughs> I was like, what? Of course he did. You know he said that. Why weren't you looking forward to the cross? <laughs> and and so that that's just not how it worked. They remembered his words, but again, they don't yet believe. And I'm going to prove that to you. Look at, look at um, Luke 24, verses 36 through 48. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted. <laughs> you, you just said you remembered. Just, just 30 verses back. Yeah, I remember that. He did say that. And here we are, but they are terrified and affrighted, and suppose that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are you troubled? I wonder how many times he sits in heaven and wonders that about us. <laughs> Why are you troubled? What is going Do you not believe? You don't trust me. You don't believe me. Why are you troubled? Um, I have to imagine that that must be a constant question on the Lord's mind on, on our behalf. And so, why are you troubled, and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy, while they yet believed not. Hey, don't you remember the words the Lord told you? He said he was going to die. said he was going to rise again the third day. Remember when he said that? Yeah, I remember he said that. Okay. And while they yet believe not. Here we are 30, 35 verses later in the same chapter. After the resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ standing in front of them, showing them his hands and his feet. And they yet believed not. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, have you here any meat? <laughs> That's just funny to me. I, that's interesting. The Lord said, you know, it's me. It's, 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 it's exactly who you think it is. It's me. It's not a spirit. I'm here in flesh and blood. And by the way, I'm hungry. <laughs> Have you any meat? 
and they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them and said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. He tells them again. Remember when I was with you before, before I died, I told you this while I was yet with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Now listen, then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, thus it is written and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem and ye are witnesses unto these things. The Lord does not expect you to understand. He expects you to believe. He can open your understanding, but he expects you to believe. And faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When God says something, he expects you to believe it. He separates belief and understanding. They are not one and the same. Your understanding can be worked on at a later date. Believe God now. He did expect these people to believe, though they had no understanding. In fact, he rebukes them for their unbelief. Um, look, at, look at Mark 16, verse 14, and I'll show you this, a parallel passage to what we just read. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. He did not expect them to understand, yet he had not opened their understanding. He did expect them to believe, and they failed to do that. These are the same apostles and disciples. Here they are also with the risen Jesus Christ, and he's upbraiding them because of their unbelief and hardness of heart. And uh, again, this is after the resurrection, and, and as we move closer to the death of Christ from the Old Testament side, um, it just they, they become harder and harder. They, they reject it more. They don't suddenly begin to say, this is the Messiah who would, die, who would die for our sins, the one that we've been looking for. No, this is the Messiah that will restore the kingdom to Israel. That's what they were looking for. And that's a, that's a big problem. So, so that deals with view number one. Dealing with view number one took some study. It took some searching and some verification. And, and we find it, it, it falls apart in two ways. In, in the fact that it breaks down with their lack of understanding. And then secondly, um, just the very practical reality that nobody ever looked forward to the cross. Um, you know, can, can you imagine Noah saying, no, we've got to build this ark and get on it because it will be a picture of the salvation that Christ will bring in the future. <laughs> no, that never happened. Or Abraham telling Isaac, remember that day I was going to sacrifice you and the Lord sent a ram in your place as a substitution. This is all, it was all just a picture of the salvation that's going to come through, through the Messiah. No, none of that ever happened. They, they did not, nobody ever went to the temple and said, you know that lamb we sacrificed? That's a picture of the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. In order to understand that, you need the Lord to open your understanding and you need the New Testament. Otherwise, it makes no sense. 
keep those things in mind as you as you approach that idea. Now, next we have keeping the law for salvation. And this is the second view that we mentioned we were going to talk about. And the second group teaches that men in the Old Testament kept the law in order to obtain salvation. Wrong. If this, this were true, you'd have three primary problems to deal with. And um, you wouldn't be able to make sense of them in light of the New Testament and, and what we know now. Uh, number one, how did men get saved, if we're going to use that term, how did men get saved before the law? How did, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, you know, Joseph, I mean, how, all, all these men that, that pleased God, how'd they do it with no law? So uh, th- there's really no, there's no answer to that without, <laughs> without just making something up. The law didn't come until Exodus 20, so that means you've got, you've got a long stretch of human history there where nobody had any law to keep in the Old Testament. Um, you know, the next problem you'd have to resolve is the law was given to the Jews. So now your God is, is akin to the God of Calvinism. <laughs> um, just sorry, those of you who didn't get the law, you're just going to die and go to hell. Um, you know, so, so there's no solution there for that. And then the third and potentially most important, if the law could justify, and this is a biblical doctrine, but the Bible states this clearly in, in the New Testament, if the law could justify in some way, why did Christ die on the cross? Uh, if you hold to this doctrine, you're going to struggle to answer those honestly. You, you might be able to sidestep them or, or you may be you may have the gift of gab, and you might be able to talk your way out of it. But um, if you're going to hold to, if you're going to be intellectually honest and hold to the truth of both the Old and New Testament as God has revealed them, the, these ideas are in conflict with each other. Nobody kept the law. That was that was the that was the problem. Now, the the number one issue we're going to have is that the law was not given for salvation. It was not a means of justification. It, it was used to prove your condemnation. It was used to illustrate to you, you have broken something. You have violated something. Well, what is it? Well, here's the law. Thou shalt not covet. Why are you, why are you coveting your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's car or your neighbor's house? Thou shalt not bear false witness. Why are you such a liar? Well, how do you know that's wrong? The fact that people don't like it doesn't necessarily make it wrong. You know, some people like abortion. <laughs> that doesn't, um, you know, so in their minds, it's, it's not wrong. So, so your feelings about something is not an objective measure of whether it's right or wrong. What God said about it is the, is the measure. So if you look at Romans 3, verses 19 through 20, one of the most clear passages on the idea. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, It saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is, is the knowledge of sin. Um, So this, this passage says at its most basic level, four things about the law. Number one, it, it exists so that every mouth may be stopped. That, that's important. 
Um, secondly, all the world may become guilty. That is exactly the opposite of salvation. <laughs> it is meant to, it, it's, it's, ex, it exists to prove your guilt, not to set you free, not to justify you, not, not to have your sins forgiven. It's, it's meant to demonstrate your sinful condition, not forgive it. Uh, number three, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Uh, that's pretty significant. The law is not for justification. The law is meant to illustrate your condemnation, at least in, in New Testament terms. In the Old Testament, it had two primary purposes. Um, you know, the, the, the law existed to regulate the lives of the Jews in the promised land. And, uh, and it also revealed the mind of God about what, what was right and what was wrong. Um, so it, it, it never had anything to do with, with justification or salvation. Look at Galatians 2.16, the same sentiment is repeated. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, uh, that we might be justified by faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, you know, so you're going to say, what some people might say is, well, that, that, that changed at Calvary. No, it, it didn't change at Calvary. No one ever kept the law. Now, what changed at Calvary was the option to trust in Christ. Before Calvary, you did not have that option. And so this is where people might ask, so then what did they do? Well, that's what we're, that's what we're getting to. That's what we want to demonstrate. And that, that's what we what we plan to close out with as we, as we move through this study. And uh, I, I pray you can endure to the end. So Galatians echoes the idea found in Romans 3. None of this indicates that keeping the law would provide salvation for, for a lost soul in any way. In fact, we're told expressly that keeping the law would not cause a man to be justified, but it would demonstrate your condemnation. That, that's exactly the opposite of of what the Bible says. Now in Acts 13, be it, uh, verses 38 through 39, be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. And so you, you, you need to trust in Christ in order to, to be justified the law of Moses could not, it, was, it, it, it did not exist for your justification. That was not its purpose. And so today when someone says, well, I, I keep the law uh, to be saved, what they mean is, what they intend to say is, I keep the Ten Commandments, not I keep the law. Um, people don't even know what the law entails. They, they don't know what keeping the law entails. It's, it, it's so silly when somebody says that. Um, it, it, it's just a, it's a high level, it, should, it demonstrates a high level of ignorance, um, which should not exist in the world, but unfortunately it does. Um, and, and so you don't keep the law. They, they, they are trying to say, I keep the Ten Commandments, to which the, the most obvious next question is, what are they? <laughs> and they never know. I've never met one person who knew. Uh, I've met a few who could name two or three, but could not name all Ten Commandments, 
which would be rather significant if you believed your justification, your eternal soul's resting place is based upon uh, you keeping the Ten Commandments, you might want to know what they are. It just seems like a reasonable thing, uh, but but they, they don't. So the law demonstrates your guilt. Let's look at Hebrews 10, verse 14. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Faith in Christ will cleanse your conscience and make you perfect. Sacrifices under the law could not do that. For then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year, for it is not possible. Now, that... That this statement cannot be any more definitive and provides it provides a major stumbling block to people who believe who submit to this idea. Now, again, I'm not trying to be contentious or argumentative. This is a big deal. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Now we know that a major aspect of the law were the sacrifices. And, and keeping the law meant keeping the sacrifices. And God states very clearly those sacrifices cannot take away sins. And, and so there's just, there's just no room for the idea that keeping the law would provide some form of justification or salvation. That was not its purpose. Its purpose was to demonstrate to you what God says is right and wrong, and his purpose was to, was to regulate the lives of Israel in the promised land. And insofar as they made a valiant attempt to keep the law in the promised land, God would bless their physical lives in the land. All right, so it's, it's important when you, when you read in the Old Testament about salvation, or if you, if you read the word salvation or saved in the Old Testament, you always have to stop, ask yourself, in the context of what I'm reading, salvation from what and salvation unto what? Saved from what and saved unto what? And, and, and that will give you the context of the use of that term, and you're going to find it's physical life. It's not the soul. It's, it's the body being saved from death or, and being allowed to live in the promised land. It's not the soul being saved from sin and given eternal life to, to go to an eternal resting place in, in heaven. So um, it's extremely, extremely, extremely important. Now, you know, if we want to look at examples of Old Testament salvation, and, and this is going to answer the question, uh, the improper question, how are people saved in the Old Testament? Well, here's the answer to the question, and, and the greatest demonstration of this is found in Hebrews 11. You say, but that's the New Testament. Yes, but it's a chapter full of Old Testament saints. That's pretty significant. How did they please God? Well, you already know the answer because everybody quotes the, everybody quotes the passages, the verses in that chapter that deal with faith 
but they don't read who it's talking about. I mean, that's, that's, that's really important to the context of that word and our understanding of it. And so Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 2, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good report. By faith, the elders, who are these elders? The elders of Israel. By faith, they obtained a good report. This is going back, pointing us back to the Old Testament and saying, here's a group of people who obtained favor from God because of their faith. Faith, not their works, not their keeping of the law. Look at Hebrews 11.6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe. So here's the connection between faith and belief. Here's, here's, here's where they, they end up being tied together. Uh, without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Look at verse 13. These all, if you're going to be cynical, if, if I were to be cynical, these all died by, in keeping the law. <laughs> That's not what it says. And we know that's not what it says. And you can't say here, these all died in faith, which means they kept the law. No, they died in faith. And what was their faith in? Well, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Their faith was not in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There was no death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't know anything about a cross. There was no Calvary. None of that existed. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. They believed what God promised them. They believed what God told them. And and through their faith, they received the righteousness of God. We're going to look at that in detail in just a moment. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. If you put all this together, the way these men pleased God was by faith, and faith in what God promised them individually, particularly. In each, as we rightly divide the Bible, we we look at what God told these men at that time. What did he promise them? And did they believe him? If they did, then the righteousness of God was imputed to them in exchange for their belief, their faith, in what God told them. And because of that, because they received the righteousness of of God through their faith, they escaped condemnation and went to a temporary holding place, paradise. Hebrews 11.13 is an incredible verse. And it informs us that one could live a terrible life, but faith in God can overrule that life. And in the end, you you will have been identified as someone who pleased God because you had faith. (laughs) You think about the people in this list list of, of Hebrews 11. Noah, a drunkard. Abraham, a liar. Moses, a murderer. Rahab, really? Rahab pleased God? Everybody knows about Rahab. 
God said she pleased me by faith. Her faith pleased me. Praise the Lord. That is tremendous. Um, David, an adulterer and a murderer. Oh, by the way, a man after God's own heart. Praise the Lord. You, you couldn't look at a worse list of men and women. God said these all died in faith. And because they died in faith, because they died in faith, they pleased me. Now, now let's, let's look at the mechanics of this. And then you'll see the relationship and what happened in the Old Testament to what happens to us in the New Testament. And, and we're going to do that by looking at Abraham in Romans 4, verses 1 through 5. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith, his faith is counted for righteousness. Again, you see the connection there between belief and, and, and faith. They're, they're used in, in this passage and the last one we read in Hebrews 11, they're used interchangeably. Belief and faith. Now, the key here, uh, if you look at the end of that, but not to him that, that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. They, be, they believed the God who could justify them. And they believed what he said, what he promised them. Abraham believed God. That is, he believed what God said to him. And it was counted, it was, it was counted unto him for righteousness. So God said, give me your faith in what I say. And in exchange for your faith, I will give you my righteousness and when I give you my righteousness, it will help you to escape condemnation. Now, that, that escape is a temporary escape until Calvary. And that's where that, that significance comes in, that what took place at Calvary was important for people in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. But no one in the Old Testament was looking forward to that, to that point in time. Nobody was looking forward to Calvary. It just, it just didn't happen. And so Romans 4 clearly defines the doctrine of imputation. And, and that is that God gives you his word. You choose to believe God. In exchange for your belief, God gives you his righteousness. And this is the only way to escape hell. Now, how does that look for us today? If you go back to Abraham, God told Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I just listen to what I say, do what I say. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Abraham believed him. Today, God says, my son died on the cross for your sin and was buried and rose again the third day. Now, there are some significant differences in what we receive in exchange for our belief. We not only receive the righteousness of Christ, <laughs> our souls are saved, our sins are forgiven. We're put into the body of Christ we are justified. We are born again. We are made heirs of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will rule and reign with Christ. We are overloaded with benefits because we gave God our faith. And in exchange, he gives us, he unloads 
a tremendous number of blessings because we trusted in the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. Praise God. But the mechanics of that, as we stated in the beginning, began in the Old Testament. God told man something. That man believed God. And God said, I'm going to give you my righteousness in exchange for your belief. There was no shed blood of the Lamb of God yet. So there is no final fixed endpoint to their salvation yet. Though it's coming for them. They'll wait in paradise. They'll stay in this temporary holding place, which is now situated in heaven. Though, though every indication we have, those men are still in paradise, which is now located in heaven. Um, you know, they'll, they'll be removed to that after they are judged and, and enter into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ at a later date. So the Old Testament promise was that the Jews would be gathered under their fathers. And that gathering takes place in, in paradise. If you think about Lazarus and the rich man, Lazarus died. He was carried to Abraham's bosom where he was there comforted by Abraham himself. He's, he's gathered together with the fathers of Israel and uh, they escape hell, but they have, not, they have not been redeemed in the New Testament fashion by the blood of Jesus Christ. So they wait in paradise, permitted to be there because of the doctrine of imputation. Praise the Lord. That's a, that's a blessing. So Abraham's, Abraham's situation predates the law. And according to God, before the law, people were given the righteousness of God in exchange for their faith. What about under the law? Did it work the same way? Did it change? Well, let's, let's see. Let's continue reading Romans 4, verses 6 through 9. Even as David, so that immediately tells you this passage is following the previous passage and is going to give you more of the same. That's the idea, even as. So let me give you a second example, David, <laughs> of someone who believed God and received the righteousness of God in exchange for their belief, definitely not because of their works. David had great days and David had really bad days. All right, he, he was either, he was either uh, on cloud nine doing everything right, a man after God's own heart, or he was at the depths <laughs> of human depravity doing everything wrong. That, that, that's, that was David. Even as David also described it, the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not, will not, <laughs> will not impute sin. Come at this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness, reckoned, imputation, impute. Uh, there's, a, there's another term, uh, uh, accounted. These, these are accounting terms. They, they demonstrate that an exchange took place. And, and, and you know, if you were to use it in terms of business, I, I have money, I will give you my money. You give me your product in exchange. God says, here's my word. Man says, here's my faith in your word. And then God says, in exchange for that faith, here is my righteousness. And because you've received my righteousness, you will escape condemnation. Now, salvation in the New Testament way 
is only available through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and that's important to note. God imputeth righteousness. And, and so you remember how this worked with Abraham. He believed God. So God's talking about, David is saying that God, God, he's talking about men who have received the righteousness of God through imputation. Well, that takes place according to Romans 4 verses 1 through 5, when man believes God. And, and Abraham is the example of that. David is an example of that. Abraham's righteousness was not a result of the way he lived. It was a result of his faith, his belief in what God said. So, so this is the best way to explain it. In the Old Testament, they escaped condemnation by putting their faith in what God promised them. When they heard what God promised them, God wanted to know, did they, are they trusting what I said or no? If they are, they have my righteousness. If they are not, <laughs> you're going to hell. You're, gonna, you're not going to be Lazarus. You're going to be the rich man. You will lift up your eyes in hell being in torment. Verse 9 refers back to Abraham as the example and explanation of what David means. And, and faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. Again, that's that exchange. Abraham gave God his faith. God said, in exchange for your faith, I reckon unto you my righteousness. When the Bible says it was reckoned, it was an, it's an accounting term. We, we, we've talked about that. So, so the Old Testament saints were not saved by law. They were not looking forward to the cross. They believed God, and it was accounted unto them for righteousness. Abraham never read Isaiah 53. Never, he had no, no knowledge of Isaiah 53. He had no knowledge of what Moses wrote. <laughs> but he believed what God told him. He believed what God promised him, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Now let's sum this up. Let's wrap this up. What, the, what does this mean for us as New Testament saints? And, and we'll finish with this. If you made it this far, thank you. I appreciate it. I, I hope this is enjoyable to you. I hope it's exciting for you to study these things and to see all these verses and, and try to put this perspective together. Hebrews 11, verses 39 through 40. And these all, referring back to that same group of Old Testament saints, and these all having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us <laughs> should not be made perfect. So the, 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 the men and women listed here, all Old Testament saints, they obtained a good report because of their faith in what God said to them. They believed God. He gave them righteousness in exchange. Because of that, they all died in faith, which is wonderful and comes with great reward, such as escaping hell. <laughs> if I had to choose, give me paradise, obviously. Uh, but if I but if I have an even better choice, if I can have some better thing, give me, give me, put me in the body of Christ. All right? That doesn't guarantee heaven. You may not ever see heaven, but it guarantees that when the Lord returns, he's going to take you and me who have trusted in Christ to be with him wherever he is. That's better than heaven. 
So they all died. They all died in faith. Praise the Lord. But because of our faith in Christ specifically, we die in Christ Jesus. We die in the body of Christ. And that means we don't wait in some temporary holding facility for the day when all things will be reconciled. We are absent from the body and present with the Lord. (laughs) What a privilege. Privilege is not even a good enough word for that. Praise God. I hope that excites you. I hope hope you are grasping what that means. Praise the Lord. We We are absent from the body and present with the Lord. No waiting. We move directly to the throne of grace. You you literally get to walk in heaven on day one and say, sirs, (laughs) we would see Jesus. And you'll see him. And you'll spend time with him. All right, so, so the mechanics of New Testament salvation began in the Old Testament. God gives you his word. You believe his word. He gives you his righteousness in exchange. By the time we get to Calvary, Christ dies on the cross. He's buried. He rises again the third day. Now, God says, my son died for your sins. If you will put your faith and trust in what he did, I will not only give you my righteousness. I will save your soul for eternity. I will give you a new body made like Christ. I will make you a son of God. I will will make you a king and priest. I will will make you heirs with Christ. I I will make you born again into the family of God. I I will make a place for you in heaven. I will come back to take you to be with me. You will rule and reign with me in in eternity. The the blessings that come with our faith in Christ are endless. They are numerous. I hope you praise the Lord for it. I hope you've made the right choice. I hope you will be patient with me as that is my view and understanding of Old Testament salvation. Now, if you disagree, I I understand. I'm I'm not mad at you. I'm okay with that. Um, You know, it's, it's, I may tweak it over the years and and update it and learn more. I'm okay with that. I'm not going to fight you over that. You preach the gospel, especially if you preach the gospel and and, and um, you attend a fundamental King James Bible-believing church, you are not my enemy. I, I would rather have you on my side than not. I would rather uh, that we serve the Lord together than not. This is not something to fight over. Um, we can disagree on it. That's okay. And, and go our separate ways. But uh, I'm not going to divide myself from people because they don't, agree with me with what happened to people in the Old Testament. (laughs) You start talking about what happens to New Testament salvation in an improper way, we might have to divide there. Um, Otherwise, praise the Lord, you're my brother, you're my sister. We will sit before that throne together because we have put our faith, we have given God our faith in the finished work of what his son did for us on the cross. Praise the Lord. Thank you for listening. God bless. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.